If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. It's, uh, I guess some preachers have what's called a Saturday night special, and that's the panic that some uh, uh, try to say, what am I going to preach on tomorrow? Well, when you're preaching consecutively through the Psalms, there's usually not a Saturday night panic. You know well in advance uh, where you and God's people are going to be the next day, and uh, we have landed on Psalm 16, and there's a good bet that next week will be Psalm 17. If you would, uh, join with me in prayer as we, uh, before we go to God's Word. Let's go to Him. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to make yourself known to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to preserve your very word for your people, that indeed through instruction and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Father, be pleased to open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our minds to know, our um, hearts to... um, to embrace your truth, your truth that brings life to us. Father, be pleased now to meet with your gathered people, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Psalms are songs, songs to be sung as we just sang from the Psalter, Psalm 16. It's 150 songs that God's people have used It's a hymn and prayer book for the church, written over about 12 centuries. And because they were written a long time ago in a place far away, they can seem very foreign. But, for those of you that have spent time in the Psalms, they are also very familiar because, as Calvin rightly says, that the the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. When you're happy and excited, you can sing the songs. When you're sad and in despair, you can sing the psalms. The psalms, as we saw last week, help us know who God is, know who we are, and to to live faithfully in that divine human encounter. Indeed, the psalms are diverse, yet they're unified because they center upon the one true and living God They're also poetical, and because of that, it is very hard, I would say almost impossible to read fast through the Psalms. There's a speed bump. It's like after every verse, actually sometimes in the same verse, there's those speed bumps that if you drive too fast, it wrecks your car. You need to slow down and meditate and pray as you're reading through the Psalms. And as such, uh, the Psalms, in the slowness that we go through, it, it, it serves to inform our intellects, arouse our emotions, direct our wills, and stimulate our imaginations. And as I've been saying, when we read the Psalms with faith, just as like when we read any part of God's Word, we are not just informed, but by God's grace and power, we are transformed. We are able to identify and put off sin. We are able to identify and put on righteousness. The Psalms help us change from who we once were to who we are by God's grace are becoming. You notice the subtitle of, or the title of this series is seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. 
I've been saying that the church needs to include the Psalms. What a tragedy. What a, what a sad state of affairs when churches here and there have no idea of the richness and the blessing of singing God's Word. The Psalms promote not just corporate worship, corporate worship that is biblically grounded, God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. The Psalms are not just for Sunday. The Psalms are for everyday life. Both on the Lord's Day and on Monday night and Thursday morning and Saturday afternoon, the Psalms help to reorient us and to realign us. Because of the thoughts of our minds and the affections of our hearts, need to be reoriented over and over again to God. And our thoughts and our affections need to be realigned by the truth. They need to be realigned by God's Word. And the Psalms serve to do that. Now, Psalm 16 is a psalm not of lament, not of thanksgiving, but a psalm of trust, a psalm of confidence. I want you to look at the the heading, a miktam of David. Um, that appears six times in the Psalms, here in Psalm 16 and also 56 through 60. And most, all scholars have no idea what miktam really definitively means. What we think it may mean is having something to do with cover. What covers the psalmist and he's going to talk about the Lord being a refuge and so that might indeed be it. Now as we will get into Psalm 16 you will notice there's not a huge emergency. There's not this crisis. Uh, David is not alarmed. And so what we will see in Psalm 16 is that David will ponder what anchors him rather than what alarms him. We have no idea of the exact historical situation that gave rise to this psalm. But you know what? That is not a weakness. You know, some, Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and others, we, we have a good idea of what was going on. And, and that's helpful for our understanding. But here we really don't know. It's probably when David is on the run from Saul, King Saul. But, but here's the good news. Because... There's sort of an unknown historical situation. This promotes personal application. You know, there's a temptation always to apply before you understand. By God's grace, we will grow in our understanding so that we can grow in our ability and desire to put the truth into practice. And this unknown historical situation can help us map our own circumstances onto this truth from God's Word. Now our approach and approach to Psalm 16, I believe, can be seen by considering the opening and closing lines of the psalm. Look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. How does the psalm begin? It begins with a plea. It opens with a request, a cry for preservation. And how does it end? It closes with a declaration, with a statement of what the Lord is doing. 
Now, in response to his plea, to his prayer that we see in verse 1, the Lord has made known to David something particular. Look back with me at verse 11. He has made known to me the path of life. He is making the path of life known to David and to all of those who call out to him and take refuge in him. So I believe Psalm 16 can be seen, among other things, as an exposition of the path of life. So I've got a question for the children in particular. Children, what do you do with a path? What do you do with a path? How about this? You take it. You take the path. Well, how about, depending on what kind of path is, how about you hike it? Yeah, you hike a path, okay? Maybe it's good enough to run on the path, okay? But how about walk? Walk, you walk the path. Hence the title, Walking on the Path of Life. And as you all know, walking is a metaphor for living. It's in the uh, uh, New Testament, walk worthy of the calling you have received, live You even see it in somewhere like a minor prophet, um, Micah. He has shown you, O man, what is good, right? To do justly, to love mercy, and to what? To walk humbly with your God. To live humbly with your God. I believe Psalm 16 will help us not only understand the path of life, but we will also see that it calls us to walk on the path that God has made known to His people, to those who call out to Him. And so for the next few minutes, we're going to consider three aspects of the walk that takes place on the path of life. And this is the outline that did not make it in to the printed bulletin. First, we'll see that it's a walk of commitment, verses 1 through 4. Second, we'll see that it's a walk of contentment, verses 5 through 7. And third, we will see that it's a walk of confidence, verses 8 through 11. Commitment contentment and confidence. Uh, Let's now explore Psalm 16 together. Join with me as I read the first four verses. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. It's a commitment, first of all, to the Lord. And notice there are three names that David is using. Three names, three titles. He refers to, preserve me, O God. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. There's God, the Lord, and Lord. Well, what's going on? Well, I think it's again, it's, it's an acknowledgement of both the Creator, the one true God, but in particular, it's the Lord, all caps, it's I am, it's God's covenant name, it's His personal name. When Moses said, what do I, who do I tell the people sent me? The Lord says, tell them I am. It's his covenant name. And when you think of of, uh, the Lord like this, you think 
the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's that intimate covenant name. But also he goes on to say, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Not just you're that covenant keep making and keeping Lord who's rescued us, but you know what? You're my master. You're my ruler because you are good. And for God, he says, you are, I, I take refuge in you. David is not looking around for protection. He's rather looking up for protection. What does he say of the Lord? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What a statement. What a declaration. I have no good apart from you. Surely, David knows good things in life, but he's saying the ultimate good, the absolute good is nothing other than the Lord, the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is confessing his submission to the Lord, he is confessing his, the sufficiency of the Lord. You are the one true and living God. You are the Lord and there's no other good, relatively speaking, other than you. But that commitment to the Lord is followed up immediately by a commitment to the Lord's people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. And notice David's language. In whom is all my delight. He has shifted his focus from the vertical to the horizontal. And he speaks of being delighted by his relationship with the Lord's people. He is attracted to the saints in the land, to those who've been dwelling in the promised land. He's attracted to them, to the godly. He's delighted in them. He's preferring their company to others. But he is not attracted to those who run after another God. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. He does not delight in them. Why? Because they are idolaters. Now remember, Turn with me back to Psalm 15, verse 4. Remember the the difficulty of verse 4? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord? Wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to love people? Absolutely. But here, the context is there are people in Israel who are going after other gods. And David is saying, I don't want to be like them. I don't delight in them. I'm not going to confess the name of their gods. You know, Jesus, of course, was a friend of sinners. He dined with sinners. And I think some people misunderstand that. They think, oh, well, I've got to participate in anything and everything in order to win a hearing. Absolutely not. No, you don't win a hearing by being like people. You You win a hearing, of course, by God's work in someone's life. But you're with them. But you're pointing them to the Savior. You're pointing them to the Lord. You're showing them 
that they are weighed down by sin and guilt and there is an escape. But David is saying, these are unfaithful Israelites. I am not going to delight in them. I am going to delight in the saints and to the godly ones. Earlier we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, in particular verse 19, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, that's what's happening in the life of Israel. That's what's happening around David. So David is committed to the Lord and he's committed to the Lord's people. Notice, again, it's a commitment to both the Lord and his people. Remember Saul's conversion experience on the way to Damascus? Remember? He meets the risen Christ. And what does Jesus say? What question does he ask Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The only person Paul had been persecuting is Christians, right? But Jesus says that I and my people are so connected that what happens to one happens to the other. In 1 John 4, we read, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The relationship between loving God and loving one another is intimate. It's interconnected. It's inseparable. My friends, let me, before we go on, just ask you this question. Are, are you committed to the Lord are you committed to the Lord's people? Now, wait a minute. Uh, God is perfect and unchangeable and always fulfills His promises. I can be committed to the Lord, but I cannot be committed to the Lord's people. Well, guess what membership vows of a church really do say? I'm yours, you're mine. We'll walk together because we need one another and our love for one another will grow as we walk together. So David expresses here this twofold commitment to the Lord and to the Lord's people. He's saying in one way, I'm yours, you're mine, I delight in you. Well, not only does walking the path of life require commitment, it also provides contentment. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Here we see contentment in the midst of difficulty. Because even though we don't know the particular historical situation, we know that it was not an easy life. It was a difficult life. And yet there is going to be contentment, as we will see. Yesterday morning, um, the men, we sing hymns, okay? Unaccompanied a cappella hymns in a room that's not so acoustically great, right? And the hymn that we've always started with, at least for the last, I don't know, two years, is hymn number 95, Though Troubles Assail Us and Dangers Affright. Each of the verses of that hymn end with these words, the Lord will provide. If you didn't hear it, hear it again. The Lord will provide. 
Again, the Lord will provide. Again, the Lord will provide. I think that's one reason when Indelible Grace um, wrote some new music, they changed the name to the Lord will provide. And when we recognize that the Lord provides for us what we need, David is going to say, we rest content. Well, let's see what David affirms that the Lord has provided. First of all, the Lord has provided for his daily needs. Where do we see that? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Um, This idea of portion and cup, most theologians, most scholars see that this um, is really... David's expressing satisfaction that the Lord is just providing for his daily needs. He's got a place to live. He's got uh, a food to eat, clothes to wear. The Lord is my portion and my cup. So the Lord provides for his daily needs, but the Lord also is providing for, for, for David's destiny. Uh, look at that expression. You hold my lot. David is recognizing that his his life is providentially ordered, not by random circumstance, not by chance, but but by um, God's divine decree, his providence. And we see elsewhere in Scripture where David just is overwhelmed with the Lord choosing him and his family, and he falls down in worship. Who am I and who is my family that you would choose me? Indeed, when David was chosen, remember, the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. So the Lord provides for his daily needs. The Lord provides for his destiny. He knows his future is safe in the Lord's hand. And the Lord provides a future inheritance. Look as it continues. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here's imagery coming back from Israel's allocation of the land where all of the tribes except for Levi, uh, the Levites were, were given portions of the promised land and there was uh, the boundary lines between la- uh, land grants. But also there's probably an illusion where the Lord himself was the Levites' inheritance. The Lord himself was what the Levites were given. But as it continues, not only does the Lord provide daily needs, the Lord provides for his destiny, the Lord provides for a future inheritance, but the Lord provides counsel and instruction. You see this in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Someone once um, spoke, I'm trying to remember who it was, and, and he said, notice before the fall of man into sin, what did man need? Instruction, guidance, a word from the Lord. Before the fall, if man needs a word from the Lord, how much more after the fall, after things have gone south and sideways, do we need a word from the Lord? Do we need instruction? Remember Jesus Seeing the multitudes, he had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. What did he do? He taught them. He instructed them. He taught them. He provides counsel and instruction. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask the Lord, James says. And what the Lord will provide when you ask for wisdom 
Indeed, that was the commendation that the Lord had for Solomon, that he asked for wisdom. This imagery, too, that um, gives me counsel in the night, also my heart instructs me. You know, um, someone made the comment yesterday that uh, one of the reasons for memorizing Scripture is so that when your mind wanders, it wanders to Scripture. When you get distracted, you go to Scripture. And so even at night, because David has been meditating on the word of the Lord, even waking up in the middle of the night, his heart, what he has put, as it were, into his heart, instructs him. I don't know about you all, but uh, occasionally it's just really hard to sleep. Anybody have that problem? You wake up, yes, and you can't get back to sleep. What a great time to to meditate upon the Word of God, to, to go over it over and over again. And that's, I think, the image that we see of David. And what is David's response to the Lord's provision, to his contentment? He, he blesses the Lord. You see that, I bless the Lord for all of this, including this counsel and this instruction. David's got a satisfaction in the Lord, and he is pleased that he's getting direction from the Lord. So walking on the path of life requires commitment. It provides contentment. And finally, third, it produces confidence. It produces confidence, a walk of confidence. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here at the beginning of verse 8 is a restatement and a reminder of his commitment. Before he moves on, he goes back, I have set the Lord Always before me. How many of us can say that? I have set the Lord always before me. What does that mean anyway? Well, in my study, I ran across an interesting um, story in the life of Charles Hodge, the great 19th century uh, Presbyterian theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary. And in his biography, his son, I believe, A.A. Hodge, says this. His father, Charles Hodge, said this about his childhood, quote, As far back as I can remember, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking Him for everything I wanted. If I lost a book or any of my playthings, I prayed that I might find it. I prayed walking along the streets, in school and out of school, whether playing or studying. I did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule. It just seemed natural. I thought of God as an everywhere present being, full of kindness and love, who would not be offended if children talked to him. I think that's a great way to express what is being meant. I have set the Lord always before me. So before moving on, Here, David restates, reconfesses his faith. This is what I believe. This 
is what we believe. And notice what continues in verse 8. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That's his confession of faith. I shall not be shaken. At the end of chapter 15, he who does these things shall never be moved. In Psalm 15, it's translated in my translation, moved. In Psalm 16, same word, it's shaken. Because of the Lord's presence with me. You know, sometimes I think people see that the presence of the Lord would actually cause them to be shaken. And indeed, Scripture is full of instances where in the presence of the Lord, think Isaiah. I'm undone. Woe is me. Think of John in, uh, on Patmos and other places. Um, Jesus post-resurrection. It, it, it shakes people. But yet, David is confessing, I'm unshaken. I think many people have a fear of public speaking. Most everybody has a fear of death in some way or another. I think also another fear is being left alone. Being left alone. But David is going to express great comfort in not being left alone, in not being abandoned. His confidence is expressed, look at verse 9, in, in gladness and joy and security. My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. That is an incredible statement of confidence. Gladness, joy, and security. And this confidence is also expressed in verse 10 in the assurance of not being abandoned. Sheol being the place of the dead, the abode of the wicked. And yet, David is confident that God will not abandon him to that place and he makes a rather cryptic statement, or let your Holy One see corruption. You know, Job, in chapter 19, says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job and David are leaning forward to an acknowledgement that this life is not all there is. And of course, the New Testament finds here a foreshadowing of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Both Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes verses 8 through 11, and Paul in Acts chapter 13 quote verse 10, and they see this as a reference to Jesus Christ. I was reading through my Jewish study Bible. It's always good to see what a quote-unquote evangelical Jew believes, as it were, um, and, and of course, looking at Psalm 16, there is no reference whatsoever to Jesus Christ. But we don't read Psalm 16 in isolation, do we? No, we read it through the lens of the New Testament. The path of life is fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. Uh, there were an awful lot of songs that we could have sung at the end. And one of them, as I was working through this, was glorious things of thee are spoken. And it says at the end, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. David is expressing fullness of joy and pleasures 
evermore. Yeah, the world offers joy, but it's not full. The world offers pleasures, of course, but only for a time. And why is there fullness of joy? Why are there pleasures forevermore? Because of the presence of the Lord on the path of life. So walking with the Lord requires commitment, provides contentment, and produces confidence. Well, the Psalms are songs. And what do you do with songs? Children, what do you do with songs? Come on, help me out. What do you do with songs? You sing them. You sing them. So as we wrap up, I want us to end by revisiting the singing of this psalm by two other singers. First, Jesus, who knew this psalm and he sang this song. And and I want to read through it very quickly and make a couple of comments as we go. And think about Jesus and his relationship with his father as we see pretty clearly in John the Gospel of John. Here's Jesus singing this psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. People call Jesus good. There's no one good but God alone, Jesus says. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Notice Jesus. Where is he on the Sabbath? He's in the synagogue with God's people. He's in the company of God's people. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he was no friend of sin. It continues. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Notice as Jesus knew he was doing his father's will. He had confidence and assurance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Think about Jesus going to the cross What for the joy set before him. He endured the shame. And then verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus knows that that is about Him. He knows. He's told the disciples three times, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again from the dead. Peter and Paul said, David who died his body is corrupted. It's rotted. But David was speaking about the David to come, Jesus. And finally, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus at the right hand of God in close proximity to the Lord. So Jesus sings this psalm and finally we sing this psalm. Think about ourselves and our relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit. Because Christians are those people who have received and are resting on Jesus Christ alone for salvation as He is made known and offered in the Gospel. So let me ask you this question. This psalm is pointing to Jesus. Have you received Him? And are you right now resting on Him?
Do you have the contentment and the confidence that comes out of the commitment? Now, when you sing the psalm, and as you sing the psalm, although you are reminded of the commitment we are called to make, we are also reminded of the commitment that Jesus Christ Himself has made. Because He says to all of those who come to Him, He will never cast out. He will never cast away. Indeed, God will be our God and we will be His people through Jesus Christ as we walk on the path of life from now until eternity. May God be pleased to keep His people on the path. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word that You have seen fit to preserve for the good of Your people. We thank You that not only do we see it leaning forward to helping us understand the truth and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but we also rejoice that You are with us on this path Father, would you be pleased to enable us to indeed set you before us. Help us to turn away from sin and turn to righteousness as we turn to you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Father, help us to grow in our confidence, but may it not be a self-confidence, but may it be a confidence nonetheless that looks outside of ourselves and to another to the Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in His name. Amen. It is our time.